A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, And this week, I want to talk a little bit about the Truman Doctrine, and I want to talk a little bit about the context of it and the international situation at the time and the events that gave rise to it. And hopefully, by the end of this podcast, what we can do is look at that context and place the Truman Doctrine within the middle of it and make the whole business of looking at it slightly more meaningful. Normally, uh, when the Cold War is being studied in lesson times, what happens is the Truman Doctrine is remembered simply as a a one-liner, that this was the moment where Truman offered to defend democracies around the world against communist aggression, and that's the end of it. And there's so much more to the whole picture, and that's what I want to tell you about today. In order to do so, we have to go back to the Yalta Conference and the conversation written down that Stalin and Churchill have with one another, the so-called naughty letter. Now, in, at the Yalta Conference, spheres of influence were decided between Stalin and Churchill. The Americans weren't particularly party to these discussions. Churchill had really not fully twigged at this point that the position of Britain in the alliance had become as junior partner. He didn't realise that Stalin wasn't going to stick to any agreement that he made with Churchill, that Churchill wasn't really a player anymore because of Britain's poor performance during the war, and that the British didn't really have the clout that Churchill hoped they did. Churchill in the latter part of the war seems to have a strange obsession with Greece and preserving Greek independence. Perhaps the penny had dropped with him that Polish independence, the issue that Britain had gone to war over, was not going to be on the table and that the Poles were going to fall into the Soviet sphere of influence. Possibly. The Americans become increasingly frustrated and angered with Churchill towards the end of the war and particularly when Churchill proposes invading the island of Rhodes in 1944 and again in 1945. General George C. Marshall says that not a single American serviceman will die on the beaches of Rhodes. However, by 1945, there are British servicemen fighting and dying in Greece. And by 1945, they're not fighting the Germans anymore. They're fighting Greek communists. They're propping up the Greek government, 
and they are fighting Greek communist insurgents. Now this is a real game changer for many students in their perception of World War II for one and the Cold War for second. During World War II, British guns were fired not just at fascist powers but also at communist insurgents. A new kind of conflict was beginning at the end of the Second World War where communists were being uh, were challenging state power or newly renewed state power in many of the countries that had been liberated from Nazism. And Churchill saw it as his role, particularly in Greece, to prevent a, com- a communist insurgency. Stalin, for his part, in Greece, pretty much kept his word. He agreed with, had agreed, agreed with Churchill that he wouldn't get involved and that places such as Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia and Hungary would fall in the Soviet sphere of influence. So he pretty much kept his word and didn't necessarily arm or encourage the communist uprising there too much. The person who did was Tito in Yugoslavia. And Tito in Yugoslavia, the new communist leader of Yugoslavia, had not relied on Stalin and not relied on the Red Army really to liberate Yugoslavia from the Germans. The Yugoslavs had done it themselves. And so Tito uh, didn't particularly follow the Moscow line and later on would definitely not follow it and definitely not acknowledge Moscow as being the the world centre of communism. Rather troubling for Stalin, a, a new centre of communism in Yugoslavia was starting to pursue its own its own agenda. And Stalin did not have now a monopoly on the uh, running of global communism. And Stalin would become even more agitated in later years, as would, would Khrushchev after him, when suddenly the focus of world communism begins to shift towards China. But that's a different story. So from 1945 to 1947, the British see it as their role to fight and put down the communist insurgency in Greece. And there are suspicions that um, the similar events may break out in Turkey and that Stalin may actually choose to become involved in Turkey. He had dropped heavy hints at the Potsdam conference that he wanted the Dardanelles, the strait, the European straits uh, that dominate the river Bosphorus, and thus giving the Soviets access to the Mediterranean, and thus perhaps threatening the Suez Canal. The danger that uh, the tide of communism creeping southwards posed was also emphasised by the fact that the Soviets had claimed half of Iran, which they converted into Azerbaijan, and they refused to leave parts of occupied uh, Iranian soil, again with an eye to looking at the oil wells of the Middle East, which were strategically vital for Europe and America and Western power in general. So what we see happening around the eastern end of the Mediterranean and the Middle East is this huge geopolitical game of vital importance and of vital to the outcome of the early stages of the Cold War. The problem for Britain is that by 1947 she's bankrupt. The war has drained her of her gold reserves and America 
has also bankrupted Britain using the Lend-Lease programme and has subtly undermined the British Empire throughout the war and really replaced Britain as the preeminent Western capitalist power. The priorities of the new British Labour Party were to build a welfare state in Britain and the heavy defence spending couldn't be justified. Britain has, throughout the Cold War, had this ongoing crisis um, and a crisis that's never fully resolved of where her spending should be at home on things like the NHS and house building and that kind of thing or manning bases abroad in Suez and Aden and Kuwait and Malta and uh, other strategically international places. Certainly in 1947 the rebuilding of Britain after the war from its heavy bomb damage and the need for a new standard of living for people really won the debate. Many British servicemen believed that they had fought to build a new Britain and the idea of the old Britain, the old colonial imperial Britain dominating was certainly not popular with a, a massive landslide victory for the Labour Party. So the commitment to Greece comes into question, as does um, the possibility of backing Turkey as well. Truman was bothered by Soviet expansion. He was very different from Roosevelt. Roosevelt, in his last dying year, had believed that a deal was possible with Stalin. He believed that it was probably time for the British to be squeezed out of world affairs and that the new United Nations that Roosevelt wanted to create could be created between the USA and the Soviet Union between them. And he had a certain naivety about Soviet intentions in Eastern Europe, even while at the time, from 1944 onwards, George Kennan and Averill Harriman, the two top foreign policy advisers for the president painted a very dark view of Soviet intentions in Poland. Perhaps it was Roosevelt's illness, perhaps it was a, a belief, an idealism that he had, but certainly he was quite misguided about Soviet intentions. Harry Truman, on the other hand, less experienced in international affairs, but more belligerent, more hard-headed, and less willing to trust or have any real uh, leniency with the Soviets. And on his first meeting with Stalin at the Potsdam Conference, was quite surprised and taken aback when he intimated to Stalin that the USA had a weapon of immense power that it was willing to now use against Japan. Obviously he was referring to the atomic bomb. And Stalin hardly batted an eyelid, um, and gave Truman a very enigmatic response. Of course, Stalin knew. Stalin's spies had been successfully infiltrating the Los, Alamo, uh, the Los Alamos nuclear research facilities and the rest of the Manhattan Project for some time. And this would come to light in the 1950s with the arrests of the Rosenbergs and uh, Alger Hiss. The rest of the American population was quite firmly in favour of a return to isolation after 1945. Towards the end of the war, there had been an immense difficulty on the part of the US government 
to continue the commitment of the American people to the war. Um, at around early 1945, there was a real war weariness and a, a belief that whatever happened, the war should be brought to an end, US servicemen should be brought home, and America's world commitments should be curtailed back. Once again, America appeared to have saved the rest of the world, and now they should be left to get on with their own devices. The world situation that presented itself to America was now radically different, and Truman was convinced that America could not be allowed to slip back into isolation, and when George Kennan sent the long telegram, of which I'll talk more about in another podcast, to the White House from Moscow, spelling out his misgivings about Soviet intentions, and when the host of US top officials, including George Marshall himself, returned from Europe, they were deeply worried that Europe was ready to slip back into anarchy, violence and civil war and communism, and not just communism but probably fascism as well, unless something was done. That something turned out to be martial aid and that's the subject of the next podcast. But Truman was under no illusions that uh, the, the struggle really for what he viewed as civilization, liberal democracy and capitalism was far from over. And the opportunity to change America's mind presented itself on March the 21st when Truman actually first articulates the, the Truman Doctrine. And really the Truman Doctrine is designed to, I suppose, frighten America to shake it out of apathy once more, in much the same way that Franklin Roosevelt's December 1940 Arsenals of Democracy speech was designed to do the same thing. Truman gives a categorical assurance to any country facing the threat of undemocratic takeover, externally or internally, that America would be there to present, uh, to offer arms and military assistance really almost on an unlimited basis. And it is this commitment that seals America's post-war fate for some time to come, really up to, the, up to Vietnam. And it's only really Nixon's um, withdrawal from Vietnam that fundamentally fractures the Truman Doctrine itself. The result of this speech is that it enabled ordinary Americans to um, pressurise and to demand of Congress large sums of money to be voted to the new defence budget. And four million, four hundred million, beg your pardon, four hundred million dollars is promptly sent uh, by May of that year to the Greeks to help them fight on against communism. And this is the first moment at which America has really committed itself to uh, an anti-communist struggle. And it would have not have been lost on the Russians. Even though Stalin isn't directly backing the Greeks, the, uh, they would have eyed very closely American actions. There was also a big administrative change in that the Army, Navy and Air Force was merged into the Department of Defence at the Pentagon. And in 1947, the National Security Act creates the CIA. The CIA was initially meant to be a, a very small office 
within uh, the Department of Defence, which would offer a, really a daily bulletin on world affairs just to inform the president. Presidents at this point are astoundingly ill-informed about what's happening in the world, and America's actual intelligence reach is very, very small. Much of it had been relied, much of it the British had supplied during the war. The Office of Strategic Services had been a, a fairly minor affair. And now, again, with as Britain was withdrawing from her world role, America was finding herself that she very rapidly had to step up, which probably explains the confusion that follows the establishment of the CIA. Firstly, the CIA had a staggering budget. Secondly, the CIA have no presidential oversight, no congressional oversight. And thirdly, the CIA are, is, I beg your pardon, is filled from 1947 onwards with all manner of adventurers, mavericks and anti-communist firebrands who believe that the role of the new office is not about informing the president on a daily basis about what's going on and giving him impartial leeway to do as he see fit, sees fit, but to take the fight to communism. The CIA that begins to emerge is a far more paramilitary organisation than it is anything really to do with intelligence gathering, though it has that role as well. And none of this would have been possible without the Truman Doctrine, without announcing and articulating this new state of siege that the world appeared to be under from the communist threat, the, there would have been little um, ideological or administrative impetus to creating the CIA or the Department of Defence. And part of the kind of domestic blowback of all of this as well is the beginnings of the seeds of McCarthyism. But again... That's the subject of a future podcast, so we'll, we've gone on for long enough today, and I'll end this one here. So again, what I normally do with these things, um, if I have uh, students listening, I want to wrap up in a particular way. There's no point in remembering lots and lots of facts and lots of interesting details and reciting them onto a piece of paper, presenting them to an examiner, and hoping for the best. What we've got to do is look at... The, the Truman Doctrine within the context of the climate of the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War and ask ourselves, well, what does it mean? What does it show us? And we could perhaps say a number of things. We could say the Truman Doctrine was um, born of Britain's retreat from her world role. The Truman Doctrine was America stepping up to a world role. And perhaps the Truman Doctrine is one of those moments where we say goodbye to one empire and hello to a whole new one. One with a different set of priorities and a different outlook and a different ideology, but a kind of empire nonetheless. America, by 1945 and by 1947 certainly, is the world's wealthiest power. It has half the world's wealth and 5% of the world's population. And the Truman Doctrine is the first moment where a clear post-war world role is laid out in very simple bullet points by the US President. After the Truman Doctrine, there would be a Kennedy Doctrine, and in some ways a Nixon and a Reagan 
and then God help us, a bush doctrine. Anyway, if you'd like to know more about this, or if you'd like to drop me a line, or join up to our newsletter where I'm sending out now a weekly kind of roundup of history and other related stuff, get onto our site at www.explaininghistory.com for all the advice, information, and new ebook titles and information about our future planned online learning portal that you might possibly need. So check us out, www.explaininghistory.com. Go there now, sign up for the newsletter, get your name down, and we'll be sending you out stuff every week. Thanks very much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.